Today, conversations with three people about stress, substance use, addiction, recovery, and community, with a few stories of compassion along the way. My name is Andre McCracken, and I am in short-term recovery, I would say, but I have been revolving through the doors of recovery for, for about a decade now. The holidays can be a very extremely terrifying and emotional time for everyone, especially for individuals like myself who struggle with mental health and or addiction. Um, And that's because most of us are lacking one thing, and that's connection. Or I should say the lack of connection. The lack of connection or isolation has been this fuel and has even taken over the driver's seat for most of my behaviors since I was a kid throughout my teenage years and even most of my adult years. If we take a look at Maslow's five levels of human needs, we can see that love and belonging are smack dab in the middle. And that love and belonging comes with friendships, families, intimacy, whether it's sexual or not. And these all bring us a sense of connection, having these friendships. And once we have created this connection, we get these amazing feelings that are followed by it. You know, feelings of belonging, purpose, passion. With those feelings, we start creating these relationships and the feeling of trust is followed. And then finally, and I think this is the most important part, the feeling of hope starts to warmly embrace us. Like I said, I've rotated exhaustingly through the doors of recovery for about a decade now, each time ending with the same excruciating outcome of self-sabotage, needle in my arm, and held captive on a cold concrete slab shared with dozens of other men. Eventually, I finally started to realize this pattern. Every shot at recovery I had taken, I had taken by myself. Friendships, family, and intimacy had never been a part of my life before and were foreign and non-existent ideas to me. Recently, I was just released from prison in May of 2020. The whole world was shut down. The recovery community was hard to navigate if you could even find it. Everything was done by telephone or Zoom and the resources provided by the community were almost extinct. Pretty much seemed like it was a one-way ticket back into the arms of the Department of Corrections. Then out of nowhere, and I mean nowhere, this gentleman named Bear shows up into my life. And yes, his physique matched his name. This man, which I had never met before, took time to sit down with me, being fully present, and simply asked what my name was and how my day was going. I could hear the sincerity in this gentleman's voice. After sharing with him about my recent release, he genuinely and wholeheartedly said, Andre, welcome home, brother. It is so good to have you back in the community with us. And this simple conversation created an explosion of hope inside me. Somebody actually cared about my presence, they cared about my existence, and somebody actually cared about me as Andre, and I wasn't viewed as an addict or a criminal or just a number. What this man gave to me that day changed my life. 
he was able to show me that that simply treating another person like a human being as we are can ignite the will for change that many of us addicts crave. Today, I strive to connect with people, whoever it is that crossed my path throughout my day. And that can look like so many different things, right? I mean, I can hold doors for people. I can simply ask how they're doing and validate their responses. I've chosen to get into the recovery field for work. And so I get to engage with that community with sincerity and genuine efforts on a day-to-day basis. And I, I get the opportunity to practice empathy and compassion to the best of my ability, which doesn't always look the same every day, right? These are the things that have been able to get me through my darkest times. Being able to validate another human being and put myself on a level of equality with everybody else lets me know that I'm not alone. Um, and it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter who I'm engaging with. If, if I provide that judgment-free atmosphere, connection is going to be made. And in my experience, that connection is the antidote to addiction. Being able to create a connection brings solid joy. And that, that's what gets me through the darkness. That is, that is my light. Andre McCracken lives in Oregon. From the Providence Institute for Human Caring, this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. We may want to drink more or eat more or spend more, anything more. On today's program, we focus on strategies for coping with the end of the year stresses we all experience with a special focus on substance use and sobriety. We'll hear from a musician in North Carolina who chooses sobriety on a daily basis, grateful for how it makes him feel. I don't know if I'll ever have another drink, but every day is that choice and so far is working for me. And we'll hear from a therapist in Los Angeles who's an advocate for community, but cautions anyone headed into a family gathering to go prepared to leave. Self-care may mean being the first one out of the party. Plus, some thoughts on entrepreneurship. Thanks for joining us today. We're glad you're listening. Bernadine Freed is a licensed marriage and family therapist who treats trauma, anxiety, depression, and substance use in Los Angeles. Bernie's been in practice for more than 30 years and is the founder and clinical director of Red Door Life in Beverly Hills. And she joins me now. Bernie, it's so good to have you here on the program. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for asking. You bet. How, how are you? I'm good. I've been incredibly busy. This time of year tends to be extra busy, so I was expecting that. So it's about (laughs) balance for me, but so far so good. So the conceit of the program 
you know, is that we want to talk about the stressors that are at play at the end of the year. But the truth of the matter is we could be having this conversation in July or October. These stressors exist all the time. But that said, there are special stressors that we feel now at the end of the year. There are economic stresses. We put expectations on ourselves and others as one year gives way to the next. We have family gatherings that stress us. We have waning daylight hours. Our culture normalizes excessive substance use at like New Year's celebrations. We have an ongoing pandemic, maybe a never ending pandemic that's disrupting our lives and our livelihoods. So there are plenty of things that are at play. How do we maintain our grasp of well-being in the midst of all that? One of the main things is during the holidays, it's really fundamental and important to understand that we all have these ideas in our head of the idealization of what our holidays should be, in quotes. Um, We have a bit of the Norman Rockwell version of gathering around, you know, the tree and drinking eggnog and, um, you know, not really considering we're all coming out of a pandemic. Um, Actually being in proximity around others, masked or unmasked, um, gathering where there's, you know, lots and lots of uh, drinking and sometimes other substances at play it can be really overwhelming for people. So one of the things that I think just fundamentally, um, if you, if people wanted to try and get through the holidays without overdoing it, if you will, mm-hmm. I think having just mindfulness, in other words, it's like a little bit of a, a check. I, we call it the HALT method. Um, so that it's hungry, angry, lonely, tired, so that we ask ourselves, am I like, because sometimes we get very excessive right around this time of year because our anxiety makes us want to try and self-soothe. So we may want to drink more or eat more or spend more or, anything more. So I think having a little bit of an inner check where we turn inward Mm -hmm. and we can ask, you know, am I hungry? Have I eaten? Because like when we go to certain events and we're around other people, we want to make sure that we're practicing the self-care. Angry. Am I resentful or feeling frustrated? Is this person kind of creating uh, resentment for me? you know, lonely and, you know, am I around family? Do I feel supported enough? What is my support system looking like? And then the last one is, is just literally tired. Am I sleeping enough? Am I exhausted by all of this? Mm -hmm. So these are just, it's a little bit of a, a little cheat sheet for uh, checking in with yourself around this time of year. The HALT method is kind of smart because it lets you say, well, Maybe the 10% of this is me being hungry. Maybe. Yeah, I need a sandwich. I mean, maybe a sandwich would make it a little bit better. It doesn't have to improve everything. It doesn't make Uncle Jack any less of a jackass, but um, <laughs> maybe a little bit more tolerable. Exactly. So 
yeah, I think having inner inner checks with self because there is so much external like intensity around the holidays. And I think that yeah. knowing and engaging how we're doing inside, you want to get really fundamental about that, which is why I really like the HALT method myself. So remind people HALT is hungry. Angry, lonely, and tired. Okay. Bernie, one of the things I really like about what you've said is acknowledging these expectations that we put on ourselves. There's this cultural expectation of like what the perfect family holiday is going to be like. I'm quite certain that no one ever lives up to all of those expectations. I always think who actually has that kind of holiday. I, in all the years I've been a therapist, I don't know that I've heard of it. You know, the perfect, beautiful, you know, holiday with all the elements that we've we watch in all the holiday movies or, you know, oh, and they've come together and everything's fabulous. I mean, um, for so many people, I think so much family of origin material emerges, right? If you have to be around family during the holidays, particularly because I work with people that have a lot of trauma or addiction issues and things like that, it's probably the worst environment to be in, like to mm -hmm. be quite frank, not easy not easy at all to navigate emotionally. So I think knowing how to navigate it is is huge. You know, without being having like, you know, 12 glasses of wine or something. Right. On Red Door's uh, website I I really like that in a fairly prominent place there's this statement trauma increases the chances of addiction. It's such a basic truth. And I'm curious what primary caregivers can be doing to screen for the sort of trauma that underlies addictions. I guess because I'm a trauma-informed therapist that, and the reason I'm a trauma-informed therapist is because I believe that trauma and addiction are married. They literally go together. Um, and so knowing how to assess for trauma is really fundamental and important, I think, for all primary care doctors and people that are working with people that have a history of trauma. Because what is interesting about it is it can look like so many other things. Say more about that. Yeah, like oftentimes I'll meet with somebody who will tell me like, oh, I have a generalized anxiety disorder, ADD, and um, agoraphobia for example. And I will say, well, tell me a little bit about your childhood history. Um, there is something called um, ACEs, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test. It's one assessment tool that can really give the clinician a pretty good picture of the person's trauma history. But not all trauma is born out of childhood either. That's another, I think, misnomer. Um, I mean, it can be and often is, especially with complex PTSD, but for people that have more straight ahead traumas, like single episode and things like that, you can assess by really being very straightforward and asking just some basic questions. One being, do you think you have a history of trauma? Mm -hmm. 
And if so, what would that look like? Hmm. So it's as simple as asking the client that right. question. The idea of accompanying people in their trauma, I guess maybe one of the questions I could ask is like, what's the implication for those of us who are, you know, going to be thrown in with relatives or in-laws or whoever? Yes. We say we want to accompany people in their trauma, but when you're face to face with the obnoxious behavior, how do you accompany that person uh, without getting triggered in your own stuff? It's really important to not be naive about it. I tell my clients to please go in armed and prepared for their own potential triggers that may or may not come up seeing their aunt, uncle, that obnoxious relative, that person that like may have been really hard on you or, you know, um, I really try and help people be, you know, prepared and not naive and not caught off guard Hmm. so that you go in with the idea that you give yourself permission to leave at any point Hmm. if you need to, depending on the level of how difficult the situation may or may not be. I always like to tell people that they have permission to leave Um, because there's something really insidious, if you will, about sometimes families for people where they really feel this deep obligation to stay beyond the point that one should stay in any of these holiday gatherings. Um, And that's when you're like kind of in potentially a really triggered, activated, traumatizing state. Right. So I'm really a big believer in light and polite. (laughs) And just giving yourself that opportunity at any point to head for the door if you need to. It's like an old showbiz rule applies to which is leave them wanting more exactly how crucial is companionship in recovery i think community is important in healing period that the idea of feeling a sense of belonging to something to a group to others there's something really fundamentally important about that um my training and my belief in terms of people that have trauma or substance abuse or, you know, severe anxiety and things like that, I really believe in undoing the aloneness. Hmm. Because so much of what fuels addiction, alcoholism, anxiety, fill in the blank, often stems from a tremendous amount of being alone. I mean, as human beings, we're wired to attach and be around each other in proximity. So, and through, you know, the pandemic and everything else, I think there's so much of all of us being in our own little silos, um, which is not really great for our mental health. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge believer in the need to have community and others around. You know, one of the insidious things about the pandemic is how community has been a threat. Yeah, it's really frightening for people, actually. I mean, for a bunch of reasons that are pretty obvious, but, you know, to get the virus, it really can be shame-invoking and isolating and just really challenging about sharing and telling others about it. I mean, even I've seen a lot of people just kind of shutting down 
and being very, well, obviously, if you have this virus, you want to be isolated. But these are people that are isolated more out of shame than just by having, you know, the virus, if you will. Right. And then you've got the whole political overlay, too, that treatment or or prophylaxis and public health concerns suddenly took on a political flavor that I think can only lead into that sort of family of origin grief that people are going to face, you know? I do, yeah. Now, it certainly was true last year during Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's. I mean, all of those winter holidays when people were inside suddenly. Right. It's really been interesting, too. I've noticed that a lot of clients I've worked with, they've thrived through the pandemic. They've just thrived. Um, There's something about being in solitude, not having a bunch of to-do list things that gives them permission, if you will, to just sit with themselves, to do the thing that they've been wanting to, that they haven't been able to because of this, that, or the other. Um, So it's been interesting. Have you felt that at all? Um, Yes and no. I mean, because... I'm a therapist for me. I think there's there's something really that I missed about the actual in-person meeting because mm-hmm. everything for me was on on Zoom. So I found that kind of tiring as opposed to actually sitting with people. Um, so I I don't think it was that relieving as it was a little frustrating, if you will, and because it was so challenging for the mental health community. Yeah. All of my introverted friends have said the same thing to me, which is finally everyone else is staying home and, and not inviting me out to do things. It's like, this is perfect. Yes, that's exactly. I've been hearing the same, you know. Did you enjoy it? I got more work done during the thick of the pandemic than I've ever gotten done in my life. It was some of the most productive. um, Professionally, it was productive, but it was also spiritually and sort of psychologically productive. I got work done with my therapist that I probably would not have done otherwise. I lost 70 pounds. It's like, it's like, it's like, I, I did stuff. I was working on stuff and it's like, bring it on. Yeah. If you all would just stay home, I would be much happier. <laughs> it's funny because when you said that you tend to be introverted, I imagine for a lot of people that I work with that have the introversion part, they're in heaven. They're just happy, prolific, doing the work they've wanted to. So you're not the first person that I've heard that from. Yeah. No, I, I, I kind of, I kind of figured that out a couple months into it. I live in a urban neighborhood in St. Louis and we, I share a backyard with one, two, three, four households, five households. And okay. um, we have a, fe- a common fenced yard uh, that we all share. So there's like mm-hmm. a picnic table there. There's a fire pit there. There are some trees. There's yeah. some garden space. Our dogs run around, you know. And that common outdoor space was really life-giving. 
yes. during the pandemic because all of us felt safe to be socially distant from one another out there. Mm -hmm. You could sit around a fire pit and, you know, have a cup of tea or have a glass of wine or whatever. It was a really, really nice way of being with people that didn't put us at risk. And that felt safe. It satisfied all of my needs for social interaction with people. It's like, yeah, I can go hang out with my neighbors for 40 minutes and then I can come back in and get some work done. Well, there's your example of community and companionship. Absolutely. Through what would otherwise be a completely alone, kind of isolated time. Yeah. Bernie, I want to ask you about a really interesting thing that I noticed about Red Door. It has a focus on entrepreneurship, which I think is really fascinating. And I've frankly never seen it in a sort of therapeutic environment like that. And I, I want you to tell me about it. The way that we foster entrepreneurship is really giving people in recovery the opportunity to find meaning and purpose and giving life to that. Mm -hmm. And we also, we really, um, we foster it. So in other words, um, we have people that build their own projects and companies while they're in the process of healing on the inside. It's also giving like a voice and kind of legs to their dream, if you will. So we really help with coaching and mentoring and helping them kind of um, fuel their dreams. Like, for example, we have um, an artist who studied at Columbia, really just a, an incredibly talented person. And through being at the Red Door, we helped him discover the world of NFTs Hopefully you're not going to ask me too much about what those are. <laughs> because for me, I'm like, I guess I understand right. that you have a picture of something. <laughs> but like, bottom line is he he found, because he's, he's very in art, but also in the sort of techie computer world of art. Mm -hmm. And so NFTs was like right up his alley. And so we actually, he did... Um, a whole opening um, premiere for his art. And he did these um, imaginary tennis shoes that are just incredible and beautiful. And they're all NFTs. And so we fostered him being able to kind of imagine his dream and do it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, we have people that are engineering all sorts of incredible ideas and just being able to step into the life that they really want rather than the one that they feel the drudgery of some something that they don't really want to do. Yeah. What I really love about it, Bernie, is that entrepreneurship celebrates the genius, the joy of being creative, yeah. making things happen. And all of those seem to be such healthy antidotes to any sort of self-loathing or self blame that could go with recovery. I've really messed my life up. And the, the fact that those two ideas are married makes it obvious to people that, you know what, you're a genius, you're a brilliant, yeah. creative person. And there's been stuff that's gone going on in your life. And here's a here's a way through it. Right. I mean, the entrepreneurship is too, and thank you, like the idea of like crashing and burning your life and feeling 
like it's not over. You're actually just beginning. And now we get the opportunity to be in the world completely you. Right. You know, individually doing what it is that brings you the most joy and being the most authentic version of self. I mean, that's what we really promote at the Red Door. That's our goal. Because ideally, that's where good mental health is, right? So. It must be wonderful to see that day in and day out. I mean, to see people embrace their best self and moving forward. There's really no other way, in my opinion, like to help people heal than for them to find out what's important to them and be the full extension of who they need and want to be. Yeah. Um, and the, and one of the main things is you have to really foster a lot of safety. The person has to feel safe in order to do that. Because as far as like exploring your environment, which is really what we're sort of talking about is like extending out into the world. It's very important that the person feel safe enough to do that. And so the therapy and the work that we do at the Red Door, not only do we give them a community they feel safe in, but also just the therapy and everything else in order for them to be able to be the best version of who they are. You know, um, a phrase that you hear used a lot by lay people is he's hanging around the wrong people. She's involved with the wrong group of friends. You know, that's what's leading to the substance use or the misuse. Earlier in the conversation, we've talked about the importance of community and connection and companionship. How do you deal with those two ideas that that companionship and community is important and necessary for well-being? And you may have been with people that were not encouraging you and your best self. Right. Well, I think of it a bit like a culture shift um, for people that when when we're learning how to be with ourselves differently and not medicated or hurting ourselves or diminishing who our full selves are um, and we're actually being who we're supposed to be, I think that there's a natural like gravity towards like-minded folks, right, that actually see you and make you feel valuable, like a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, So that when people are like in early recovery, the reason that there's all of this, you know, um, 12 step, you have to be part of this group is because you, you feel like people get you in a way that you don't when you're in your own self-destructive mode. Because oftentimes, like, the people you hang around, right, are a reflection just of you and where you are. So if I'm really out there busy hurting myself or drinking too much or um, abusing drugs and alcohol, likely um, the people I'm around are going to be doing the same. So learning about how to let go of that and embracing Um, a different version of ourselves also gives us a different group of people that we're surrounded by and gravitating towards. Because we deserve that. We do deserve that. And we deserve to see that in the people we're around, reflected back to us. It's really critical. 
I really applaud the work you do, Bernie. It's, um, it's really admirable. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, it's beautiful. I feel very, I feel honored to sit with the people I get to sit with. Um, and sort of giving me the permission to witness the transformation because people are all capable of transformation. It's just believing in that idea that you can transform. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I, I hope you'll come back sometime. I would be honored. I would love that. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Bernie Freed speaking with us from Los Angeles. Before the hour ends, I wanted to check in with an old friend in North Carolina. Joe Newberry joins us from Raleigh. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays. I know you're out traveling a little bit. One of the things, Joe, that's impressed me about you is that you have been really forthright in your social media posts about your sobriety and making these invitations to people. Like, if you have questions, reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to you. And I'm, that's always impressed me. Your gratitude impresses me and that gesture of reaching out impresses me. Well, thank you. I didn't want this hour of the show to end without checking in with you. And do you have any advice? Do you have any strategies for people who are struggling? It's a hard time if you're in general. And if you're also struggling with or thinking about sobriety or addiction, um, it just it just adds on to it. Um, when when I when I uh, started living a sober life, it was uh, I never I never twelve stepped. I just decided that I didn't like how I was feeling, and and so what I did, uh, I, I substituted uh, seltzer uh, for for uh, liquor at the cocktail hour with my with my father-in-law who lived with us at that time. And it worked out good. And then I realized how, how much better I felt. And so that would be, that would be something that I'd, I'd suggest is it doesn't have to be, I don't know when, uh, I don't know if I'll ever have another drink, but if I don't, that's okay. uh, It's, uh, but every day is that, is that choice. And, that choice so far is working for me. I, I, I found out that I felt better. I started writing better. I started singing better. And it works for me. And that's why when I, when I come around um, to December 28th every year, I, I just post and share with folks, um, it, this worked for me. It works if you work it, if you're interested in, in finding out more about it. I'll um, I'll be happy to talk to you, and that's that's just part of my obligation as human. That's so sweet. It's one of the many things I love about you. Hmm. One of the others is is your voice. You want to sing us out of this episode? Sure thing, sure thing. When Dr. Martin Luther King gave his last speech on April third, nineteen sixty-eight, he said, "I may not get there with you. I'll join you when I can," and I. That just resonated with me, and so um, I'll sing a little bit of I Will Join You when I can. Go climb the highest mountain. I may not get there with you. Go climb the highest mountain. I may not get there with you. 
Go climb the highest mountain. I may not get there with you, but I will join you when I can. Go swim the deepest ocean. I may not get there with you. Go swim the deepest ocean. I may not get there with you. Go swim the deepest ocean. I may not get there with you, but I will join you when I can. When I can. When I can. I will join you when I can. Thanks, my friend. You're welcome. Have a good holiday. Happy New Year. Thank you. Joe Newberry there, speaking with us from Raleigh, North Carolina. His card says simply banjo, guitar, fiddle, and song. Earlier, we heard from Bernie Freed, a licensed family and marriage therapist. She's the founder and clinical director of Red Door Life in Los Angeles. And we began the hour with Andre McCracken and his ongoing story of recovering. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old sign For old sign my dear, for old sign we'll talk a cup of kindness yet for days of old sign You'll find links to our guests on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. It's also where you'll start if you want to share this episode with a friend. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarian Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Amanda Schwartz, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. We'll be back in three weeks with an episode devoted to conversations on the latest epidemiological snapshot of the pandemic, and we'll ask about the clinical picture and what's in store for 2022. I'm Sean Collins. As always, thanks for listening. Be well. Should all the quintins be forgotten?